touchdown, Wisconsin, and this game is underway with a bang. This is where the lacrosse area gathers to talk Wisconsin sports. The Wisco Sports Show is on the air. Join in by phone or text at 796-2558. Now, here's Grant Bills. Hope you had an awesome weekend. Glad you're back. My name is Grant Bills. I am your host of the Wisco Sports Show. This is our last weekend without sports, right? This Friday, the Brewers start their season. They'll be playing the Cubs. And then hopefully, hopefully, fingers crossed, that we go a long time without a weekend uh, without sports. So the last couple of days, I hope you enjoyed it. I did. I got outside. I did some fishing, played some beanbags. Uh, me and a couple of buddies got a keg. Like, we just had kind of one last weekend with all this free time. Because hopefully, starting this Friday, we're going to start a long stretch of weeks and weekends and months with sports, 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 sports. If everything goes well, there are no catastrophic outbreaks and these leagues don't have to shut back down. Hopefully, the last couple of days, that was the last weekend for a while without sports. I have a lot of positivity to get to on today's show. 2020 has certainly been the year of bad news, but... I think the last couple of days, COVID numbers excluded because every state is hitting high in in COVID cases right now. Although Lacrosse County only eight new cases today, which seems really positive. I'm not sure how many people got tested, the rate of infection, the rate of hospitalization. It seems like there's a million different numbers and you can spin it a million different ways. But I think only eight new cases in Lacrosse County is pretty good. So wear your mask, keep doing what we're doing. And we'll keep that number as low as possible. Other than COVID numbers, which continue to go up around the country, I think all the news is good today, which will be a nice change of pace. I want to talk about the NFL. I want to start with football. And then I want to get to the Brewers for a good half hour, 40 minutes, because we're counting down to opening day, which will be this Friday night. The Brewers will start at Wrigley Field. We're going to broadcast a scrimmage on WK2I on Wednesday. They play the White Sox. Uh, So check the schedule at WK2iSports.com. But we'll have games starting Friday, and we'll have a scrimmage on Wednesday night. So if you want to grill out and kind of have a a pregame, a a trial run for opening night, maybe you want to try something new on the grill or you want to set up the backyard in a new way. Well, we can we can do a dry run on Wednesday. So plan on that. Tuning in on Wednesday. We're going to get to the Brewers coming up. I want to talk about Iowa football at the very end of the show. Uh, So if you want to talk college football and if you're an Iowa Hawkeyes fan, this is a story that uh, keeps unraveling about Gary Barta, the athletic director and Kirk Ferentz and some things going on in, in the athletic department. That's Got some new details today, so I want to close the show with that because we we talked about that story about two weeks ago and some more details are out, so I want to hit that. If at any point today you feel moved, <laughs> what I'm saying moves you, and you want to join in, you have something to share, please don't wait for an invite. 608-796-2558. That's the five-star telecom talk and text line. You can also reach out on Twitter at WKTY, at Keystroker Grant, all good ways to, uh, to join the show. Uh, let's start with the NFL. I think sometimes, especially this year, social media tells us how to think. And I'm not talking about censorship, like certain platforms and certain people, especially on the the conservative side, sometimes get censored, hidden. That's not what I'm talking about. That's a a totally different issue. And you could talk for hours and hours about that. I'm talking about how social media decides the in-group and the out-group, right? Jamel Hill, who used to be at ESPN, she might actually still be a contributor for ESPN. But I think she contributes for, for the Atlantic. She she does um she creates content for lots of platforms. She tweeted uh, yesterday, July nineteenth. I bookmarked the tweet because I wanted to talk about it. She tweeted this: If you vote for Donald Trump, you are a racist. You have no wiggle room. I, now I don't agree with that. 
I'm not the biggest fan of Donald Trump right now, and I don't think I've hidden that on this show. But if you vote for Trump, I'm not going to flat out call you a racist, right? I think Trump has shown some racist tendencies, but that doesn't mean everybody who votes for him is a racist, right? I, I just don't think that's plausible in our country. I hope that's not plausible, that there are that many racists. But this tweet is a perfect representation of how social media works. It's cut and dry, black and white. Either you agree with us or you don't. And if you don't, you are wrong. And we're going to chase you and hunt you down and berate you and tweet at you until you shut up or you change your mind. That's how social media works, right? It's, it's, it's very dangerous. It's groupthink, right? Social media does this. I don't know when or where this started, but everybody the last couple of days on social media has been dumping on the NFL. Even Dave Carney this morning, when I did my hit with him at, at 8.20, said, hey, Grant, the NFL's really behind. They're missing this, 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 this. They had all this time. What, they've had all this time, months to prepare. Why aren't they ready? And if you looked at social media today or yesterday, you'd think the NFL's crumbling. You'd think they were about to go bankrupt and fold like the XFL or the AAF. You'd think they were screwed if you just looked at social media and you went with what everybody is saying and thinking, which is that, that mob mentality, that group think often exists on social media. NFL, they don't know what they're doing. How do, they have no plans. They have no structure in place. They've had months. How do they? Look, look, take a deep breath. They're going to have daily testing. It was announced this afternoon that when camp starts, they're going to test every day. And then a couple of weeks in, they're going to go to every other day. And hopefully, as we've seen in baseball and basketball, as you slow down testing, those numbers will flatten out, right? You want to be vigorous at first, and then you can back off a little bit once you've established that baseline. They announced that today. That was always going to happen. The NFL was always going to give daily testing or semi-daily testing three or four times a week because that's a cost of doing business. Sports in 2020, you need to have daily testing. I was never concerned that that wasn't going to happen. It was always going to happen. And they announced that today. The more and more I read and the more research I do, teams and the NFL actually seem to have a pretty good handle on this. And it's frustrating because nobody's realizing that. Everybody on social media and, and the mob, the group is saying, God, the NFL's messing this up. I... I'm not so sure that they are. Now, football's up against it because they tackle and they hit each other and they huddle and there's pig piles of very large grown men, sweat, and, and everybody's breath going everywhere. And there's nothing the NFL can do about that. But putting precautions in, establishing guidelines and procedures, if you read and you do research and you don't just listen to what the mob is saying, the social media mob, I think they're actually doing a pretty good job. They have some things to, to figure out. Specifically, how COVID infections could impact a roster spot and bonuses and pay. And I think they'll figure that out. They have all the motivation in the world to figure that out. I've read some really promising stuff today and heard really promising stuff about health and safety protocols. Really promising. This morning, Football Morning in America. It's Peter King's column. And I don't love Peter King. I think he's a little bit of a curmudgeon. I remember on the 4th of July, he, he was talking on Twitter about how the hot dog eating contest is sinful and it's shameful that ESPN shows it. And I'm just like, dude, shut up. Like, go yell at a cloud. But he does really, really, really good work. And in his column this morning, he described in detail the tour that he took of the Vikings facility in Egan, which is only a couple years old. I don't remember, but it's very, very new. He described his tour as they prepare to welcome in rookies and welcome in the team. Seems to me like they've thought of everything. They've prepared for this. They've taken every precaution and they're ready to go. I want to share with you just a couple of details, right? First of all, head athletic trainer who has been there a long time. Eric Sugarman is now doubling as the infection control officer. And he began the interview and Peter King bolded and italicized this. There are masks in this building and they are required with 
without exception. That was point number one, bolded, underlined, italicized. Masks required without exception. Everyone who enters the facility first goes through one of a few testing trailers that have been set up, right? And there's different entrances for tier one and tier two employees, meaning the players go one way, right? Limited office personnel and and clerical workers go in a different way, right? It's very separated. It's very organized. So the people who don't have to see each other don't see each other. There's a station when you enter the facility that scans everyone's face. You need to be wearing a mask, checks their temperature. And then once they're cleared at that station, they have to pull up their phone, go on an app and go through a 10 step process to hit. Okay. Okay. Check the box, check the box. All right. I can enter. Right. A lot of you, I'm sure have done that at work or if you've gone into a building, I know when we were covering COVID press conferences at the the health department, we had to do something very similar, right? This isn't, this is commonplace. They're also using technology to trace where everyone goes in the building, who they come into contact with. So if there is an outbreak, you know exactly who is with who, who walked next to who. It's very, very specific. This is planned out. Their locker room has been redesigned. They've cut down from 94 lockers to 42, and they're bringing more this week. They've changed the alignment of showers, training tubs, the training rooms. They've put up plexiglass. The cafeteria has been redesigned. The, The way the food is delivered has been redesigned. There aren't any full team meetings. The big auditorium has been redesigned. They've thought of everything. The Minnesota Vi- and and the Vikings, look, we rip on them. They've never won a Super Bowl, ha-ha, all that stuff. The Vikings, at least in the last couple of years, have been a really, really well-run organization, right? I really like Rick Spielman. I think he's a great GM. I think their front office and their brilliant new training facility, they do a good job, right? They've thought of everything, and they seemed as prepared as possible to make a football season happen. Once again, if the football season doesn't happen, it's going to be because it's football. Like, you tackle each other. Like, that's not Roger Goodell's fault, right? That's not the, the the union leaders or doctors' fault. That's just the nature of the sport. So if football doesn't happen, it's because grown men are tackling each other. And that's understandable. But just through this example with the Vikings, they've thought of everything. Every little detail. And they prepare, prepared, seem confident. They seem ready and almost excited to get this going. Right? Now, that's only one example. But... The mo- and I don't want to call it the mob. I sound like Clay Travis or, or Ben Shapiro. But but social media does the, this thing where you're either in the in-group or you're wrong, right? I referenced the tweet if you're just joining the show. Um, I referenced Jamel Hill's tweet yesterday. You're either, if you vote for Donald Trump, you're a racist. There's no wiggle room. That's what she said. And you can agree or disagree with that. But a tweet like that points out the problem with social media and the way it encourages us to think. You're either with us or you're wrong. And if you're wrong, we're going to tweet at you. We're going to berate you until you either log off, go away, or you change your mind. And the last couple of days, every podcast I listen to, every tweet I see, every radio or TV segment, it's like, the NFL's a bunch of morons. They're going to ruin this. Well, I did a lot of reading this morning and this afternoon, and everything seems like it's going well. I'm not saying that a football season is going to happen. Once again, it's football. They're tackling each other, right? That's a, that's a problem in a pandemic. But just looking at the Minnesota Vikings, they they seem like they're more ready than ever to make this thing happen. A lot can change in a very short period of time, which is why I think the NFL didn't get out over their skis. Why would they start putting health and safety protocols together in early June or in May? It just wouldn't make sense. The NFL, get it done. They'll get things figured out. And other teams would be wise to follow the example of the Minnesota Vikings. Hopefully, we'll see something about what the Packers, the Bears, the Lions are doing. But the Minnesota Vikings look like they're ready to go. And you would never think so if you just went on social media. You just watch cable TV. I have a lot of optimism. I have a lot of optimism. What, regardless of what the mob says. And once again, I don't want to sound like, I don't want to sound like Clay Travis 
or a conservative right-wing blogger, but it's true. It's the way social media operates. It dictates the way we're supposed to think what's right and what's wrong without any wiggle room in the middle. All right, it's baseball week. So I wanted to touch on the NFL, get a little bit of an update, but now I want to talk about the Brewers. I want to talk about the starting rotation. I want to talk about Corbin Burns, the bullpen. I just I just want to just roll around in Milwaukee Brewers conversation for the next half hour, and you are welcome to join. 608-796-2558, the five-star telecom talk and text line. We are four days away from opening day. Let's talk Brewers coming up on the Wisco Sports Show. Wisco Sports Show here on WKTY. I am your host, Grant Bills. Follow me on Twitter at Keystroker Grant. Follow us all at WKTY. A lot of news regarding the NFL today. Just little updates here and there about the progress they're making. I I think they're headed in the right direction. I think the league and individual teams, like the Vikings, the example that I used, I I think the league and teams are more prepared for this season than we're being led to believe right now. I think everybody's being overly negative just because it's the popular thing to do. And especially in a year that's politicized as it is and polarizing as it is, I'm just trying to avoid groupthink. Just trying not to get sucked in. I don't want to be a sheep. I sound like... I sound like a dude who runs an ultra-right-wing podcast in his basement. But it's it's true. Do your own research. Do your own reading. And from everything Peter King has written, stuff I've read in The Athletic, it sounds like a lot of these teams are prepared, even like confident and excited to get things going. And they got to make the money work. And, 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 and I think football will do a better job of that than baseball. they got to figure out roster stuff and, and how COVID impacts roster spots and, and, and guaranteed money versus you know incentives, all that stuff. They have, they have things to figure out. But just like every other sports league, the NFL is going to have to figure it out in real time as science and, and medical news changes and evolves. So I just I, I don't want to get sucked into piling on the NFL uh, like everyone else has been doing the last couple of days. Really, what I want to talk about today is the Brewers and, and all week long. So baseball fans, if you've if you've gotten sick of talking about the NFL and the NBA bubble and college football, you're in luck because we're really going to hit it hard this week. Um, getting ready for the Brewers season. Opening night is on on Friday. And I absolutely can't wait. I thought we'd talk a little bit about pitching today because we did the batting order last week, talked about the DH last week. So let's talk about pitching today. Uh, And for what it's worth, Corbin Burns was great again today. He kept his streak going. He did give up a run, but it was off like a little stoinker and then a stolen base that Keston here kicked the ball around and Keon Broxton ended up at third. It It was just messy. So Corbin Burns still wasn't giving up hard contact. He pitched really, really well today. Um, and was flawless until the last batter or two, which, like I said, sometimes you give up a little flare and your second baseman kicks the ball around and all of a sudden you give up, you know, an easy run. Corbin Burns was great again today. He has been through spring training and then through spring training 2.0. I think we were too quick to label him an ace last year, and then we were too quick to label him a bust. I think we just need to calm down on Corbin Burns. We let the hype get out of control, and then we let the hate get out of control, and now I think going into this season, we should be right in the middle. Like we, we have reached the Goldilocks level with Corbin Burns. And I think that's great. And remember, I talked about this last week, but if you missed it, Corbin Burns got through the minor leagues in two years. He was drafted in 2016 and debuted in 2018. He's still got a lot of growing to do. A pitcher like Brandon Woodruff, who was drafted in 2014, he debuted in 2017, so he had three years in the minors. And then he went bullpen, starter, spot starter, bullpen, majors, minors, majors, minors. He went through a more normal progression for a starting pitcher. He's a little bit more weathered. He's got a little bit more experience. Josh Hader. We love Josh Hader, right? He was drafted in 2012. Didn't debut until 2017. 
right? So Corbin Burns' trajectory into the major leagues is a lot steeper, and he probably has a little bit more developing and a little bit of growth still to do. And we're watching that play out in the majors versus in the minors. So just cool it on Corbin Burns. We were too high on him, then we got too low. Now we should be in the middle. We should have, like, tempered our expectations on Corbin Burns, which is a good thing going into this season. We did our uh, batting order predictions last week. I might have to change it because it looks like Ryan Braun might not be good to go on opening day. He's got some oblique tightness and aches and soreness or whatever. So I said Kane, Braun at the DH, Yelich here, a smoke, Avi Garcia, Manny Pena, Eric Sogard, Orlando Arcia. I think if Ryan Braun can't go, I would have to guess Ben Gamble takes his spot at the DH. For the same reason, I think Eric Sogard gets the first nod at that extra infielder spot. Eric Sogard and Ben Gamble have a little bit of a leg up on Brock Holt, Ryan Healy, Jed Jerko. They've, they've been with the Brewers at least a season before. Eric Sogard a couple of times, Ben Gamble last year. And Ben Gamble's been hitting the ball really well. He's been playing well. So if I had to guess Ryan Braun out on opening day, I would guess Ben Gamble. But that's just an educated guess. Just based on the tiny little bit of evidence we have. I like doing predictions sometimes because it forces me to think and research critically, right? It forces, like last week we did the batting order. It really made me think about Justin Smoke and Avi Garcia and Eric Sogard. And that's something I really haven't done yet. We've talked about health and safety protocols, about contracts, about Christian Yelich and Josh Hader. What about the new guys? Those predictions and looking at what the, the batting order might look like, that forced me to think critically and do a little bit of research. And that's why predictions are good. I don't just like, picking games to pick games, right? I like there to be some rhyme and reason behind doing predictions. Today, I want to lay out what I think the starting rotation is going to look like. And there's already a couple of tweaks because it announced earlier today that Brett Anderson is going on the IL, and that's going to change things a little bit. Now, luckily, the Brewers have a lot of pitchers who could be starters. There's, what, five starting, a classic five-man rotation. I think the Brewers have maybe seven guys who could be starters, maybe eight if you get a little bit more creative. They have a lot of options, which is great. I also thought that last year, and, well, it didn't turn out so well. This year, I'm a little bit more confident, though. It's only 60 games. You can, you know, there's less chance of, a, of an injury, hopefully. And if you can get through 60 games, uh, hopefully your depth doesn't wear down like it might over 162. This is what I think the starting rotation is going to look like. This is pretty locked in. I think this is what it's going to be. I think this is just me affirming what most other people have already predicted. Let's start with Brandon Woodruff. He's going to be the opening day starter. I don't have a lot to say. Craig Council commented uh, a couple of days ago that he told Brandon Woodruff that this is his first time of, of many times as an opening day starter. And I hope that's true. Craig Council seems to feel really, really confident in Brandon Woodruff, and he should know. Brewers fans are a little bit hesitant to to get too excited about an opening day starter because we've seen it with Willie Peralta and Junior Guerra. We've seen very good starting pitchers who were very excited about flame out very quickly. I don't think Brandon Woodruff is going to follow that trend just because I, I think the Brewers are due for an opening day starter to pan out. I also love Brandon Woodruff's path that he took to the major leagues. Talked about Corbin Burns zipping through the minors in two years. Well, Brandon Woodruff was drafted in 2014, debuted late in 2017, and I like Brandon Woodruff because he's had to hack it as a reliever, as a spot starter, as an opener, then a reliever again, then the starter, majors, minors. He's gone back and forth and played every role possible, which I really, really like, right? If I was a manager and I was hiring, uh, let's say I worked at this company at Midwest Family Lacrosse, and I was looking for a salesperson, 
Well, I'd like someone who's maybe done more than one job and maybe lived in different places and has, has diverse experiences to draw on. That's a good thing. We want people with, with diverse experiences because you learn. You learn as you get older, as you move around, as you do different jobs. I think Brandon Woodruff has learned from being a reliever and an opener and a starter and pitching in the majors to the minors back and forth. He's had to grind a little bit. And I really like that. The same reason why Corbin Burns probably struggled last year is the same reason why I actually feel confident in Brandon Woodruff. Because he's had to work for it a little bit. He's had to go through it. He's had to pitch in the minor leagues with nobody at the games. And I really like that. I, Brandon Woodruff is... He is an opening day starter that I want to believe in. After watching Junior Guerra flame out and Yoli Shasin flare out and we don't talk about Willie Peralta, I just I, I feel good about Brandon Woodruff. I'm, I'm confident. He's, a, he's an easy guy to cheer for. So that's their number one starter. And their number two starter was going to be Brett Anderson. But now he's on the aisle with a blister. And it sounds like he has blister issues every year in spring training. And it's something he gets over and he's ready to, you know, ready to go. But spring training is a little bit different this year. So he's got to work through that injury in real time. Let's talk about Brett Anderson a little bit, though. He's a lefty that gets a ton of ground balls. And he has an injury history. And he's fairly on the older side in comparison to some of these other Brewer pitchers. But I think the reason why Stearns and Council felt confident to bring him in this year, even at an advanced age and with the you know history of injuries, is it's only a 60-game season. So maybe they think they can really sneak 60 games out of him and what would amount to 12 starts, but he's missing his first, so now he's probably in line for 11 starts. Maybe in a normal setting, they're not as confident about Brett Anderson, but I think this year they're feeling good. He will be their number two starter, but he's going to miss the first time around. He's on the 10-day IL. So that's probably going to shift Corbin Burns up. Corbin Burns looked so confident this spring. He looks different from, from actual spring training where he was great to spring training 2.0 the last two weeks where he's been great. I, I cannot wait to watch him pitch in 2020. I'm going to temper my expectations, but I'm very excited, right? Compared to a guy like Freddie Peralta, he has all the tools, all the pitches. Freddie Peralta is very raw. He's got a fastball and a slider. Corbin Burns can throw everything, and that's exciting. He just was throwing some filthy stuff the last couple of days. So Corbin Burns will, will be their number two. I think will eventually settle as their number three. That leaves Adrian Hauser. Adrian Hauser is a better pitcher than we think. He's had to go through a lot the last couple of years. He had Tommy John, and he was slogging in the minors. And then they brought him up as a reliever. And then due to injury and just incompetence elsewhere, he had to move to a starter and then back to the bullpen. I, I want Adrian Hauser to start and finish a season in the same role because I think he can be really, really good. Uh, there was a, an excellent article written for MLB.com by Mike Petriello. It was about the six pitchers to watch, the no-name pitchers who could really show up in 2020 and surprise some people. And he shared an interesting stat about Adrian Hauser, who was one of these six pitchers. He said in 2019, there were 111 pitchers to throw at least 1,000 fastballs. And Adrian Hauser's results on those fastballs were ninth best. He was on a list with Jack Flaherty, Garrett Cole, Walker Bueller, Mike Clevenger, He's in pretty good company. He throws his two-seamer that moves a lot and a four-seamer that stays pretty straight. That's his bread and butter. And Adrian Hauser, and it was explained in this article. I'd suggest you go read it. It's really interesting. Adrian Hauser, which is something I've never noticed, gets a lot of strikeouts and a lot of ground balls, which typically they're, they're opposites, right? Hater gives up home runs or strikeouts, it feels like, right? Adrian Hauser's the opposite. He can get strikeouts and ground balls. Last year, 130 pitchers threw 100 innings. Of those... 36% or 36 pitchers had a strikeout rate of 25% or higher. Of those, only four had a ground ball rate of 50% or higher. So there's a very small sample size of pitchers who get strikeouts and ground balls at a high rate. You want to know the four? Luis Castillo, Sonny Gray, Steven Strasburg, 
and Adrian Hauser. It's a pretty good company to be in, right? And, and look, those numbers are fascinating. They might not mean anything. But I read that and say, he's got the tools. He's got the stuff. We just need him in a solid role. He needs to recover from Tommy John. He needs to like be in the starting rotation and stay there. Don't move pen to starter to pen to starter. I think Adrian Hauser has shown his stuff the last couple of years. And I think this year, hopefully, he's finally in a stable role that can allow him to just pitch and worry about nothing else. That's best case scenario. I think he's their fourth starter. And their fifth, I think, is Josh Lindblom. Only because they sought him out and paid him to come back from Korea. Like that. That's why I think. I don't think they pay that money and go out of their way to get a Korean baseball player to not put him in the starting rotation, at least at the beginning. Think about Eric Thames, right? They brought him over from Korea, and a couple weeks into the season, he was their starting first baseman. He was great. They weren't afraid to get him in there. I think Josh Lindblom fills a similar role. Now, what about Freddie Peralta? Fastball Freddie didn't quite make the cut, and I don't think, and, and maybe with Brett Anderson hurt, he is the fifth starter. But at the beginning of the season, Freddie Peralta isn't going to be a regular starter. He's going to make a stop, spot start, probably. And then we'll see. There will be injuries. We'll have opportunities to start. But I think Freddie Peralta could better serve the Brewers in the bullpen. I want to make that argument coming up next. We're going to talk about Iowa football and some new announcements today that came out regarding Gary Barda uh, and Kirk Ferentz and the rest of the athletic department. We talked about this story a couple of weeks ago where a bunch of former Iowa players, remember this, came out and said, I would never recommend anybody go to Iowa. It's a terrible racist environment. And it was really surprising. Well, we have a couple of more details, and they're interesting. I've been thinking about it all day ever since I read it this morning, and I want to talk about that before 6 o'clock as well. A lot more coming up next on the Wisco Sports Show. Wisco Sports Show, thanks for hanging out. Shooting in. I hope your week is off to a good start. My name is Grant Bills. I'm your host. A couple of Brewers bits of news if you missed it this afternoon. So, Brett Anderson, the Brewers expected number two starter, so he would have pitched Saturday, is going on the 10-day IL. He's got blisters, which is normal for him. I guess he gets them at the start of every season at spring training. But just the way that this spring training 2.0 has been set up. Uh, is a little bit difficult for him this year. He doesn't have time to get over those blisters. So he's going to miss his first start. Expect Corbin Burns to make that start. And maybe they slide Freddie Peralta in to make a spot start until Anderson is hopefully back. Uh, and it sounds like Ryan Braun might miss opening day as well. Um, Council stated today that, yeah, he's concerned. Uh, we'll see how his body responds the next couple of days. But Craig Council showing genuine and honest concern today. Which I guess, look, Ryan Braun is, is always injured. I'd be more concerned if he wasn't banged up grass is green water is wet Ryan Braun has lower back tightness right just (laughs) death taxes and oblique tightness right it's it's Ryan Braun I still made a bet with uh, Ryan Giannone who we had on the show a couple weeks ago he's a huge Cubs fan he works at News 8 and and does TV for the loggers as well and I, I snapped him today and I said look Ryan Braun might only get one at bat this weekend but I said if he gets one at bat we're betting uh, we're betting some fast food that it's a home run. I said, I don't care if, if he gets one bat, the bet is on. He hits a home run at Wrigley, and he's like, got it. I He wa- he didn't even want to take the bet, right? He's like, yeah, Ryan Braun always kills at Wrigley. But if it's only one at bat, let's say he gets one pinch hit all weekend. I- I'm going to bet. I'm going to bet my Cubs friends. I'm going to bet them fast food, some tacos, some beer, whatever. Uh, I will always believe in Ryan Braun. Ryan Braun forever, baby, especially at Wrigley Field. So just a couple of new uh, Brewers notes. Check all that news at WKTYsports.com, and Check out the Brewer's schedule while you're there. Earlier this afternoon, I was doing some deep thinking, so the studio smelled like smoke. I was looking back at the 2018 Brewers, 
I was trying to understand, maybe on a deeper level, what made them tick. And there's some obvious reasons why that team was really good. Christian Yelich was the MVP. That's a huge reason. Craig Council managed that team really well. They got hot in September. And then, of course, Yolisha Seen and Wade Miley were unreal down the stretch, especially against the Cubs in the games that mattered the most. Those things just kind of happened. You need some luck to make the postseason, especially in baseball. I think Yelich getting hot at the time he did, that's lucky. Craig Council pushed all the right buttons. That takes some luck. And then, of course, Yolisha Seen, who's didn't even end up on the Brewers roster at the end of last year. Him pitching well, it's a little lucky. And I like Wade Miley, but he really, really, really overperformed at that time. That's that's not stuff that was in the Brewers' control by and large. And that's fine. You need some luck. That's a big part of making the postseason and, and winning a championship. But there is one part of that team that they can recreate. And that's the bullpen. That's the bullpen. The 2018 Brewers team was really good all around. I don't think we really give that team credit. That was a really, really good team. And I think sometimes we remember them as this team that got hot with an amazing bullpen and they really outperformed. That team was really good. Like Domingo Santana was a pinch hitter. Curtis Granderson was just a random player at the end of the bench. That team was excellent. But the bullpen is what really made them special. They had the great bullpen and then that allowed Christian Yelich to get hot and that allowed Craig Council to manage the way he wanted to manage. And that allowed Shasin and Miley to pitch the way they pitched. Everything started with the bullpen. It wasn't just the bullpen, but that's where it started. And I think if the Brewers want to get back to the level they were at in 2018, the smartest way to do it is by building a bullpen. Build it up, build it up, build it up. I don't think it's realistic to try to get a group of starting pitchers akin to Max Scherzer, Steven Strasburg, and Patrick Corbin in Milwaukee. I don't, I don't think that's realistic. Unless... You know, Brandon Woodruff turns into a Cy Young pitcher and Corbin Burns turns out to be amazing and Freddie Peralta takes a huge jump and now all of a sudden they're, they got three homegrown aces. That could happen. I don't, I don't think it's very likely. It could. I don't think it's a smart strategy to hope that the Brewers end up with three amazing starting pitchers like the Nationals had last year. I, I just don't think it's a realistic path to contention. However, I do think it's realistic for the Brewers to build up a bullpen similar to what they had in 2018, especially while Corey Knable and Josh Hader are still here and still in their prime, assumedly. I'm assuming Corey Knable is going to return to form after Tommy John, and I'm going to assume Josh Hader doesn't take a step down this year. All right. Assuming. Could turn out to be the case. Maybe Josh Hader drops off, and if, if that's the case, tough luck. Brewers got to try to find another way to win. But I think the best way to contend at a high level is for the Brewers to try to return their their bullpen to the form it was two years ago. And I think here's how they do it. Here's what I did. I went and I isolated the four or five most important arms in that bullpen. And I tried to find a 2020 comparison. So like, who's going to fill the Josh Hader role? Who's going to fill the Jeremy Jeffress role? Who's going to fill the Corey Knable, the Corbin Burns role? And I said, okay, Here's the players they can plug in if they want to try to take a a similar strategy. So let's start with 2018 Josh Hader. Well, they're just going to use 2020 Josh Hader, right? Like, Hader fills the role that Hader filled two years ago. So cross that one off. 2018 Jeremy Jeffress. I actually think that the best way to replace Jeremy Jeffress and the role that he played is to just see who the surprise arm is in the bullpen this year. There's always one. A lot of times they... They fizzle out after year. All the Brewers have to do this year is catch lightning in a bottle with one reliever. It happened with Josh or John Axford. It happened originally with Jeremy Jeffers, and then it happened again. There's always that one guy. You just need to catch lightning in a bottle for a few months to fill that role. Maybe that's Ray Black. I'm not sure. 
Drew Rasmussen looked really good today. I think he's an intriguing option. And I talked to David Gasper of reviewing the brew today. Hit him up and said, like, who could a surprise reliever be this year? And he said Rasmussen. Rasmussen could be a good, not just a flash in the pan this year, but a good reliever for a long time. So we'll see. Bobby Wall's another option, too. He was hurt last year. I think one reliever outside of the big names that we know will step up and be great this year, make him the closer. I actually think it's best to reverse engineer. So don't take your best best reliever and put him at the closer. We'll put whoever at the closer surprises this year, whether it's Black, Rasmussen, Bobby Wall, tuck him there and fill the 2018 Jeremy Jeffers role. Remember, Jeremy Jeffers was a surprise in 2018. So take the one reliever that gets hot, make him the closer. There you go. So now we've replaced Hader and Jeffress off of that 2018 team. What about Corey Knable? I actually think Corey Knable should fill that role himself. And the way they used Corey Knable in 2018 was almost as a closer for the starter. Craig Council could allow Yolisha Senior Wade Miley to pitch into the fifth inning and just maybe get in a little bit of trouble. All right, he allowed a walk. Well, we'll see. We'll see if he can make it through instead of pulling the string because he knew that he could bring in Corey Knable and Corey Knable was pitching at such a high level that he's going to strike out whoever came to the plate and Corey Knable was going to close for the starter. And I think Corey Knable should be used in the same role this year. I think a lot of people are going to say that Corey Knable should be the closer this year. I don't think so. I think his role should be fluid, just like Josh Hader's is. And I think the best way to use him is in the fifth or the sixth inning to help out the starter as the starter exits the game. Hopefully, Corey Knable can do that this year. And I think coming off Tommy John, pitching him in the fifth or the sixth, maybe the seventh, depending on how the start goes, it's a lower pressure situation. And it's a situation that I think will make it easier for Corey Knable to succeed coming off Tommy John. So use Corey Knable in that role. Now, what about Corbin Burns? Remember how good Corbin Burns was in 2018? And how versatile he was? He could pitch two or three innings. He could pitch one. Could bring him in 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 an empty frame, or you could bring him in in a high-leverage situation. And other than game two against the Dodgers, where he walked a couple guys on the base and didn't look so good, and I was there, and it was terrible. Other than that, he was great. He was untouchable. I think the 2018 Corbin Burns role should be filled in 2020 by Freddie Peralta. Let Freddie be Freddie. Let Freddie throw gas with Recklin Abandon. Don't worry about adding a curveball or throwing the slider more than you have to. Don't waste time adding pitches. Just let Freddie be Freddie. And the best way to do that is to let him throw out of the pen as a middle reliever or as a guy who can get a couple innings to, to fill that gap or, or throw one inning. It doesn't matter. Use Josh Hader as the blueprint. A gas-throwing reliever who doesn't really mess around too much with anything other than the fastball. And you can throw one inning, two, three. You can use him wherever. He's the versatile Swiss Army knife. Freddie Peralta could be that guy. And what I love about Freddie Peralta is he's got a diverse background. Like Woodruff and like Corbin Burns, he's started, he's been a reliever, he's been in the majors, he's been in the minors. He can give you multiple innings or not. I think Freddie Peralta, I think they should move into the pen full time. Here, let me pose this question a different way. This will help us think about this. A little thought experiment. Would you rather have on the Brewers right now? I mean, you could choose. Would you rather have a B-minus starter or would you rather have an A-plus reliever? Would you rather? Would you have a, a B-minus starter, which I think is the ceiling for Freddie Peralta, unfortunately, at this point, or would you rather have an A-plus superstar reliever? Because I think Freddie Peralta could be that superstar reliever if they just place him in the pen and really double down on that role. I think Craig Council can get way more use out of Freddie Peralta in the pen. And I think they can win way more games with an extra arm in the pen compared to in the starting rotation. I think I think this is obvious. Move him to the pen. You brought in Lynn Bloom. 
You got you got Brett Anderson. You got arms in the rotation. Freddie Peralta in the starting rotation, I don't think makes the rotation that much better. Freddie Peralta in the pen, I think takes the pen to the next level. Do you get what I'm saying? It's, it's kind of a complicated concept. But Freddie Peralta's value is higher in the pen. And I think his pitching style is more conducive to being in the bullpen. He just, just let him throw fastballs. Just let him rear back and just cut loose. Just like Josh Hader does. Hopefully, the role that Corbin Burns played in 2018 can be played in 2020 by Freddie Peralta. And having that middle reliever who can eat a couple innings or you can only use him for one, that gives Craig Council the flexibility to manage the game that Craig Council wants to manage. I think it makes perfect sense. Move Freddie Peralta to the pen. I think the Brewers will be a way better team for it. And I think it's going to happen eventually anyways. I think the Brewers are going to settle on a rotation that doesn't include Freddie Peralta. So just get it over with. It's a 60-game season. Every game matters a ton. So just put him in the bullpen and just go from day one. Let him throw gas. It'll be a, it'll be electric. Freddie in the pen. And now you have Freddie, Corbin Burns, or, or excuse me, Freddie, Corey Knable, Josh Hader, and then one other reliever has to pop, and you have an incredible bullpen. Now, now you're very similar to the team in 2018. I, I think it's a no-brainer. Move Freddie Peralta to the pen. It's a story we'll have to follow. Uh, when we come back, speaking of stories... Uh, two weeks ago, we talked about what's going down at Iowa. Remember when a couple former Iowa players came out and said, hey, parents, don't send your kids there? And we're all kind of like, the hell? Because Iowa's pretty respected. Kirk Ferentz is pretty respected. Well, we have some more details, and they're really, really interesting. I'm not going to call anyone a racist today. I'm not going to call for anyone to be fired, but I want to share with you some of these details so we can think about them, ponder them, because they're really, really interesting. Final segment of the Wisco Sports Show coming up next. <laughs> Final segment of the Wisco Sports Show. My name is Grant Bills. I hope your week is off to a good start. It's easy to be optimistic today because uh, Brewers start their season on Friday, baby. And so do the Cubs. So do the Twins. Like, it's not just Brewers. It's just exciting to have baseball back. His summer without baseball, it just kind of feels slow, doesn't it? Kind of feels mellow. There's nothing to nothing to watch, nothing to bounce. Like, I want to hear Bill Michaels and Radio Joe argue to the bone about whether or not the Brewers' rebuild is over. And I have been robbed of that this summer, and it's a bummer. So I'm excited to have that back coming up at the end of this week. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we talked about a story uh, that was surprising. Like, sometimes headlines in sports come out, and, like, nothing really surprises me because when you read and you follow sports every day, you can the most part see things coming and you understand which teams are kind of a mess and which teams got things tightened up and where the scandals come from like the Washington story from the Washington Post that didn't surprise me that's a terrible organization I don't think that surprised many people but when Iowa football was called out a couple of weeks ago by former Iowa players that surprised me Iowa I thought pretty well respected in the world of college football Kirk Ferentz has been around a long time Right, It surprised me. And maybe, just maybe, because Kirk Ferentz has been around so long, he got complacent, and we gave him the benefit of the doubt, and it, it allowed this type of thing to happen. I, I don't know, but it was very surprising. Remember, Akram Wadley came out, and, and some other former Iowa players as well, and basically said, look, my experience at Iowa was terrible. I don't recommend you go play football there, and parents, don't send your kids there. Now, I don't know about you, but most people don't come out against their alma mater and talk about how it's bad. Like, Andy Bernard in the office is an amazing example, and I think that's run in the mill. Like, people remember college as their glory days, and they can't stop saying 
good things about their school. This is this goes against that. We now have some new details about what was going on, the background behind the tweet storm from some of these Iowa players. When Akram Wadley tweeted and all these players came out, it kind of felt random. Like, why is this just coming out now? Did everyone just decide, hey, let's cancel Iowa football? Like, it felt very odd, right? Kind of out of nowhere. Well, apparently this has been going on for a little while. This isn't anything totally new. Um, and I read the investigation. It was a long piece. There's a couple different uh, control groups and studies that were conducted. And before we start, and I want to share just a couple of these things with you in our last couple minutes. I'm not damning Kirk Ferentz as a racist or saying he should be fired. I'm not saying any of that. I, I just, I'm fascinated by the story. I don't know if I've ever seen anything like this before. So the latest information shows that Kirk Ferentz knew about all of this, all about these accusations and these feelings from certain members of his team. He knew about this well before the social media storm hit, if it was in late June or early July, I don't remember. And and that according to this report that Ferentz read last year in 2019, black players confirmed through this survey, they felt that they had had to conform They were subjected to verbal harassment. They were targeted in extra drug testing. They were misled about resources that were going to be available to them during the recruiting process, meaning the recruiting trip said one thing, and then when they got there, the reality was different. Uh, The discipline policy was inequitable between white players and black players. They were misunderstood by coaches. They weren't supported in their academic pursuits. This was known. Here are a couple of statements from the report. One player said, I felt I had to put a mask on and check my identity at the door. Uh, I was told by my coach to change my hairstyle because it didn't fit the Iowa culture. Uh, One student athlete said a staff member cursed and yelled, degrading an African-American student in front of his peers. This was known, right, in 2019. This was known long before any of this ever became public. This is the quote that jumped out to me, and I tweeted it at Keystroker Grant. This is what Kirk Ferentz had to say. And look, I'm not calling him a racist. I'm not going to pile on. Because I think that's what social media, like we talked about to begin the show, social media encourages you to say, I'm right, I'm right, I'm right, to jump in on the in-group and hate the out-group. And I, I'm not piling on Kirk Ferentz right now because we don't know everything. And, and But this quote was like, what? This is what he said. He made some changes after learning about this last year. This is what he said. We allowed student-athletes to wear hats, earrings, and hoodies But what I learned here is there's a lot more to it. We've got to dig deeper, listen better, and act on things that count. Wait, 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 wait. You had multiple athletes complain about racism in your program. They felt they weren't supported. They felt that they had to be someone that they aren't. They had to leave their identity at the door and conform to what Iowa wanted them to conform to. And Kirk Ferentz's response was, and he put it in writing. He said it. He said, well, I, we're letting them wear earrings and hats and let them walk around with their hoods up. I, I guess we got to do more. What, what? Now, anything can be taken out of context. This could be part of a long conversation. This is just what was mentioned in the report. Like I said, I'm not piling on Kirk Ferentz. I'm not calling him a racist. I'm not calling for him to be fired. But that is not great. And we gave Kirk Ferentz the benefit of the doubt when this first started a couple of weeks ago. And then we learned that this has been going on for a while. I'm a little bit hesitant to give Kirk Ferentz the benefit of the doubt now after we already did once. And now he kind of made us look dumb. This is the, the, the most outstanding statistic from the whole study. The discrepancy in graduation rates at Iowa between black student athletes and white is the worst in the Big Ten. There's a difference of 37%. And apparently coaches attribute these graduation rates to family dynamics, attitudes towards education, student upbringing. This whole thing reeks of racism. And I read the whole report. So I have all the context that's been provided and all the info that's been provided to us. And I'm not willing to 
you know, wave a flag and, and bang the desk to get Kirk Ferentz fired. But this does not look great for a coach that everybody wants to give the benefit of the doubt to. And I think he deserves it, but deserve at some point goes away. Right? That's This is kind of damning for Kirk Ferentz and company. All right. We're going to continue talking Brewers and a whole lot more this week. We got to go. Wisco Sports Show, same time, same place tomorrow. Talk to you then.